This is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. My name is Germ. This is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. It is 10 p.m. here in Cape Town. What time is it there with you or by you, David Cole? It is one in the afternoon. However, I only wake up at noon, so I've just been up for an hour. So I'm still a little fuzzy, a little sleepy. Uh, so I will apologize uh, to you in advance for that. Well, I'm also sleepy because it's 10 p.m. as I just said. But I have the all important Jack Daniels to keep me to keep me going. <laughs> I I had a, a couple drinks already. Um, I try not to drink on the air because it sets a bad example for the kids. Listen, you just don't want to set a bad example for the children. Listen, over the last year of pandemic nonsense, uh, I think you can drink pretty much at any time of the day now, and it's acceptable. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we we still here in Los Angeles, uh, we don't have bars open yet. You know, you can't go into a bar. Uh, to drink so everybody just drinks at home these days and drink they probably do (laughs) i i spent a full year sober last year uh (laughs) my first sober year in about 15 years i i was fine with it but i just didn't have as good a time what's it like being sober david (laughs) what is the sober and 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 what is it that you speak of (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I wanted to prove to myself that I could do it. Oh, and also my uh, liver was failing. So there was that. Um, well, that's a pretty good but, reason. Yeah. But after doing 12 straight months, and I wanted to do 12 straight months without even as much of a sip of wine or a beer mm. or anything, I proved to myself I could do it. And then I was like, I'm 52 years old. Mm. What the hell? If I want to drink, I'm just going to drink. So uh, I'm back to my old ways until the liver tests come back bad again. The liver is an amazing organ, Jeremy. It heals itself. That one year sober probably bought me like five or six years of drinking time. Well, as long as you don't do the PCR test, because then you're going to be permanently sick. Because you know that it's a sham. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yes of course of course <laughs> but that's not what you and i are talking about we are talking about something that probably does deserve a few drinks um and that is um truth i think would be a good way of putting it or searching for facts or uh how how, how can we how can we title this in a very uh accurate way david help me here well, Jeremy, it's it's a process, and yes. I think that's one of the most important things for people to understand about the search for historical truth or scientific mm. or medical truth, any kind of truth. It is always a process. When you're talking about religion, talking about holy writ, you're talking about yeah. tablets, you're talking about something that is not supposed to change or be revised or altered over time. But when you're talking about history, science, medicine, anything like that it is always simply a process and that's one of the things that i I tend to work very hard to tell people who have followed my work for a long time or people Mm. who have just found out about my work recently Mm. um 30 years 50 years 100 years it is always simply a process of attempting to better refine what we know Mm. and better communicate it to people 
Well, so let's quickly do some some bio some bio stuff here. Uh, I don't even know how to describe you, but let's let's go with filmmaker or documentary maker. Uh, you're some sort of journalist, but I think you've probably had the most death threats that I've ever ever read about. Well, I was the first, Jeremy, in a lot of ways. I mean, I was certainly one of the first people to ever be canceled Yeah. Uh, before that term was ever invented or used. I was one of the first people I'm, to be chased off a college campus by an angry mob 20 years before people like Milo Yiannopoulos yeah. and Dan Coulter, who's a good friend of mine, 20 years before they ever uh, got chased off a campus, I was being chased off of college campuses, two of them, uh, UCLA here in Los Angeles and University of Texas at, at Austin. Um, and that was 1991 and 92. Yeah. Um, so the whole thing with, with Antifa, I was getting, they weren't even called Antifa at the time, but I was getting people like that who were uh, assaulting me, chasing me off campuses. And at the same time, there were organized or groups, uh, one group in particular called the Jewish Defense League, that issued an actual death warrant for me. Now, that was in, uh, the, that was in 1997. The internet was not back then what it is now. You didn't have social media. And a lot of people weren't on the internet back then. Mm. So it wasn't as big a deal. But I had an actual uh, $25,000 bounty put on my head yeah. by a group. This this was all going on uh, long before all the people who, who are being canceled and, today. And this, was simply, today. this was simply because of a conversation that you were trying to have. Um, I started out very humbly. I started out doing work in the Holocaust research field in the early 1990s. Uh, back when, and again, we talk about a process. Mm. Um, starting in the late 70s, with the gradual loosening of Cold War restrictions in Poland, and then eventually by the 1980s, the loosening of Cold War restrictions in Russia, um, you had a, a, a whole... Um, birth of new information coming out about the Holocaust, because uh, a lot of this information had been behind the Iron Curtain all throughout the 1940s, 50s, and 60s, and 70s. By the late 1980s, it was clear that there was so much new information coming out about World War II in the East and the Eastern Theater and about the Holocaust, that guys like me, and I was a kid, I was like 20, Guys like me could uh, get in the field and do new research uh, that the old guys hadn't done because they couldn't. And now a lot of those old guys, they had their PhDs, they had their tweed jackets and their pipes, and they didn't want to do new research because it might contradict the stuff mm -hmm. that they wrote about when they got their PhDs back in the 1950s. So it was up to the young guys like me to do the new research. So I, I, I went to Poland. I went to what was still then the Soviet Union uh, back back when that existed. I did research. I wrote about it honestly. I wrote about it accurately from the facts as I understood them. And boy, it just got me in a whole boatload of trouble. 
Well, let's start with let's start with some of that. Um, okay, so mm-hmm. I I watched that main documentary of yours that that caused all the uproar. Uh, the one that you did in 1992, I think it was. I. I Yes. I think it's I think it's just called Outfits or what was the name of it? You know what? It was originally called David Cole interviews Dr. Franciszek Pieper. That was the name in 1992. But these days everybody uploads it As on I, BitChute. They used to upload it on YouTube, but it's banned now. But they mm. uploaded it under so many different titles. It had one title in 1992, David Cole interviews Dr. Franciszek Pieper, but now it's called A Jew visits Auschwitz. A Jew goes to Auschwitz. <laughs> uh, behind the gates of Auschwitz with a Jew. Two Jews, one cup. It's called all kinds of things. Uh, it's this, and in fact, also there are some people who re-upload it and add bits to it. Oh, no. If you hear any voice in there other than mine, then that's not the original version. Right. But there are some people who have intercut things into it. Um, it's a video that I did in 1992 in my home. I didn't have a studio. I didn't have um, any kind of access mm. to professional facilities. Uh, I was in my my living room, and there's in the part of the film where you see a diagram of Auschwitz mm. and a pointer yeah. and your, uh, and your pencil on things. the. Yeah, th- that's my kitchen. I taped a map of Birkenau to my refrigerator, and then I realized I didn't have a pointer. So I took an old transistor radio and I I broke off the antenna. And that's the pointer. That is how low rent that film was. <laughs> and yet, it to this day, 30 years later, people still talk about it because the basic truths of it are unchanged. And the, yes. the main point of that film is that the uh, building that was called the gas chamber yes. that Auschwitz, the Auschwitz Museum, had been showing off to tourists for decades in Poland was in fact a post-war reconstruction. It was something that was built by the Soviets. Uh, The Soviets took an air raid shelter, remodeled it. And and I got the director of the museum, the Auschwitz State Museum, to admit that to me. Now that, of course, that's the opening of a discussion because it's not the end of a discussion, it's the opening of a discussion. Because once you get the director of the museum to admit that that building is no longer evidence in its present state. Well, now the discussion becomes, okay, so let's talk about what evidence you have. You can't use the building anymore. It's like if you're prosecuting someone for murder and the prosecutor admits, okay, this gun, this gun that we claim he used to shoot the guy, we built this gun. This is this gun's a fake. We just built it mm. so you could see what a gun looks like, but it's not the gun. Well, so now you have to say, okay, so if you don't have the gun, what do you have? And again, it's not the end of the discussion. It is it's the beginning. Yeah. You, you've eliminated one piece of evidence. So now the discussion becomes, let's talk about what evidence you might have. And what's What's quite concerning in your documentary, David, is that the tour guide and the director gave you two different um, answers, which immediately should should be flying your alarm bells. And it's very important also to to remember uh, 
what Poland was like at that time in the late 80s, early 90s. Poland was still just coming out of its existence as a Soviet satellite state. So Poland was economically very depressed. Poland was, um, I mean, I have very vivid memories of just how bad things were back then. I have, I've not been to Poland in quite a long time. I hear that things are quite good now. And in fact, uh, Poland seems to be one of the few countries still fighting to keep Europe mm. European and God bless them. But back in late 80s, early 90s, Poland was in a very depressed state. And one of their few tourist attractions is Auschwitz. Now, that's not that's not good news for any country when your best tourist attraction is something you're presenting as a death camp. But it was important for the Polish at that time to bring in as many Westerners and Israelis uh, and other tourists to Krakow, to Oswiecim as possible. So they had created uh, a tour of the camp that was very centered around atrocity stories. And the whole point of the tour back then was you would go on the Auschwitz tour, you would hear story after story of atrocities, and then the last leg of the tour, you would go into the gas chamber. That would be the punchline. That's the, that is the climax of everything you've been through. So that room, that gas chamber room, was vital for the emotional impact of the tour. And it was absolutely um, standard procedure that the tour guides would say, and now we are in the gas chamber. Uh, and when I went there and I'm talking to the tour guide, her name was Alicia. She spoke very good English. She had a very thick accent, but she spoke very good English. All the tour guides were, were spoke perfect English. Um, and that was her policy. That It wasn't her decision. That was what she was told to do as a tour guide. Tell everyone that this is the real gas chamber. So when I asked her, um, if it was in its original state, she said, yes. Of course, I knew that not to be true because I had done mm -hmm. plenty of research before I got there. And uh, I don't blame her. You know, people still watch this video. My God, Alicia is probably, that was 30 years ago. Shame. So she's probably in her 60s now. And she probably still has to deal with people watching that video and thinking that she's uh, some kind of deceptive person. She was just a tour guide. And it was never about blaming her or uh, heaping any scorn upon her. But I did ask to speak to her superior, and her superior directed me to the, the museum's uh, director of archives, uh, Frankie Kick Peeper. And that's when I got the interview with him and he's the one who gave me the straight story that uh no no it is a reconstruction of an air raid shelter all right david before we go any further let's just quickly throw out some disclaimers here uh because of your documentary and related research you actually had to change your name because you faced so many threats have i got that correct uh, yes. Uh, after that $25,000 bounty was put on my head, 
um, I decided to uh, not be David Cole anymore. David Cole is my birth name. A lot of times people on, on Twitter, social media, elsewhere, that they, they will do the, the quotation marks like David Cole, mm. like it's not a Jewish enough name. I'm David Cole. My father was Dr. Leon Cole, a very famous uh, doctor and, uh, and scientist here in L.A., uh, but I chose a pseudonym that I decided yeah. would be more Jewish. I became David Stein. Uh, <laughs> I wanted something that was Jewish sounding, but simple enough that a dumb blonde could say, because I like dumb blonde women. And I well, did not want to constantly have to be explaining my name to them. Well, so I wanted like a blonde woman, David. didn't he? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I just found it was, you know, if, if I'm going to be David Lipschitz, it's like, and they're like, oh, my God, like, how do you spell that? And I'm like, okay, I'm David Stein. And uh, Okay. Um, so, okay, so we've got that part out the way. The, mm-hmm. the next thing is, obviously, as you've just pointed out, you are Jewish by birth. Both your parents are Jewish. Uh, so you do have some pedigree here. You do have a dog in this fight, um, as it were. Uh, but you're also interested in truth. Well, yeah. I mean, I like to think of myself as uh, what a uh, an intellectual Jew should be. And indeed, I am Jewish on both sides of my family. Look at my friggin' face I and the way I talk. I think I almost sound too stereotypically Jewish sometimes. Uh, but I come from a long line of leftist intellectual New York and European Jews, uh, the the kind who were um, back in the day who were into Marxism and anarchism and and, uh, all all the kind of things that I am not into. But I like to think that I'm carrying on an intellectual tradition because um, uh, in the world that I was born into and in the Los Angeles that I was born into, there were certain taboos and certain things that you were not allowed to question. You could be as leftist as you wanted in Los Angeles in the 1970s, just as you can now. I mean, that's only gotten worse. It hasn't gotten better. Uh, There's no challenge in being leftist, Uh, but there is certainly a challenge in... uh, in doing research in certain topics. Now, to be clear, because this is something that's dogged me once or twice in my my life. People will say to me, oh, you just got into Holocaust revisionism because you were trying to make trouble. You were trying to make waves. Honestly, no. Uh, Holocaust revisionism gave me no rewards and certainly did not endear me to the city that I live in and the people who were around me. It was not something I was trying to do to become some kind of a media star. And in fact, I have never, to this day, I've never solicited media. Media comes to me, but I've never solicited it because that's never anything I wanted uh, to get. It wasn't the goal of this. But when I did, around 1989, when I did find out that there were some open questions about the Holocaust. Well, I was drawn to it. I was drawn to it because no one else was. And it seemed like the proper field for a guy who uh, didn't want to be constrained by taboos of, of his day. Okay. And then before we continue the conversation, I just need to ask you a question from one of the viewers. Are you a self-loathing Jew? 
<laughs> um, that's the self-loathing you thing is um, it's it's a routine that I can make fun of. It's like, uh, oh, I'm I hate myself. I because uh, that's what I'm called. You know, they're always like self-hating you, self-hating you. In point of fact, I'm trying to phrase this uh, in the best way that I can. Being the age I was back then, 21, 22 years old, and you're going to go on national TV and you're going to talk about how Auschwitz was not an extermination camp. You're going to be facing a hostile crowd, an audience, and a hostile TV host and hostile producers. You can't do that kind of thing if you don't like yourself. In fact, it's actually uh, to your benefit if you have fairly high self-esteem to do that kind of thing because you've got to walk into that lion's den to be and, and be very certain that you are in the right. So if you're a Woody Allen type Q who's like, well, I, I, I nobody likes me and I, I, I guess I'm just, I should go away because I'm not that good. You can't do the kind of stuff I did. So no, I'm, I'm not self-loathing, loathing, if anything. Once people get to know me, uh, they they will sometimes have a criticism that I tend to occasionally be arrogant. I think they're wrong, uh, but uh, that, is a, that is a very, very frequent criticism once somebody actually gets to know me in person long enough. Well, David, so the premise, the premise of your documentary, which I will use as the sort of overarching shadow of this conversation, is that Auschwitz, which is pretty much the main camp, that's spoken about when we refer to the Nazi Holocaust. By the way, I, like, I prefer to say Nazi Holocaust. Um, I was influenced by Norman Finkelstein in that regard, as opposed to the Holocaust, because he refers to the Holocaust as an industry. Um, so I, 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 I just say Nazi Holocaust so that we can be a bit more accurate, but I don't suppose it matters. Um, the overarching shadow is that in your documentary, the premise is that Auschwitz was not an extermination camp. And you go on to present evidence as to why this is the case. How do we start this conversation? Where do we start? Do we start with uh, the supposed orders from Hitler to exterminate the Jews, which even as Norman Finkelstein has said, historians can't, can't determine, they can't find... So where does this begin? Where does this whole thing begin? Well, uh, this also, Jeremy, gets back to my point about uh, this being a process. Because when I tackled Auschwitz in the early 90s, there were other uh, things in the Holocaust still to be tackled. And at the same time, David Irving, a friend of mine, a man I've known for 30 some odd years, was also in that same process. Now, David Irving has certain skills that I don't. David Irving... Uh, is one of the few internationally recognized experts on verifying the handwriting of certain Nazi higher ups, verifying uh, their the their whether something is is a, a document is a forgery or a document is is legitimate. Um, so as much as Auschwitz is important, equally important is the entire process. A mistake was made, uh, partially innocently and partially out of malice, but a mistake was made back in at the end of the war uh, 
where Auschwitz was uh, used to represent the entire murder, mass murder of the Jews. Now, that was exceptionally inaccurate. Um, what we're talking about, when whether you want to call it the Holocaust or the Nazi Holocaust or the Shoah or whatever somebody wants to talk about, we're basically talking about three distinct phases. Um, there are smaller phases that if, if we had three hours or four hours, I could go into. But for the sake of this conversation, let's narrow it down to uh, three distinct phases. Phase number one, the Einsatzgruppen open air killings. Now, this was the SS Einsatzgruppen commandos who came in in the course of Barbarossa and the course of the invasion of Russia and in the aftermath of the invasion of Russia and mopped up Jewish civilian populations, adults. Initially, it was just going to be adult men. They threw in the women, the children. They never had any orders about what to do with one or the other. Now, that happened. The Einsatzgruppen killings absolutely happened. David Irving, Mark Weber, the head of the Institute for Historical Review, who's probably right, so this, my closest friends. The so world. there's no denial here. No, no denial about the Einsatzgruppen. Uh, then you get to phase two. This is the one nobody likes talking about. Phase two is what is called Action Reinhard. Uh, but basically, phase two was the uh, siphoning off of useless eaters from the Polish ghettos. Uh, of course, useless eaters is not my term. I'm, I'm not using that. I'm not, ad I'm not advocating that term. Um, but Action Reinhard was the, the filtering out of the Polish ghettos, and that happened in 1942, a year after the Einsatzgruppen killings, and continued until about the April, May of 1943. Auschwitz was not part of that at all. That involved other camps. That involved camps called Treblinka, Sobibor, and uh, and uh, Belzac. Um, that also happened. Uh, the Polish, the, the Polish population, the Jewish population in Poland was absolutely ravaged during the Action Reinhard period, um, and there are documents that attest to that. And um, the physical evidence doesn't exist because in 1943, Action Reinhard was ended. And those camps I just mentioned, Treblinka, Sobibor, and Belzec, were leveled by the Nazis because it was done. Now we come to phase three. This is the part that people are arguing over. Uh, phase three was when Action Reinhard ended, did that also mean the end of the mass murder of Jews or... Was the mass murder of Jews simply transferred to the newly renovated Auschwitz-Birkenau with its ovens, with its giant crema ovens and its giant underground gas chambers? That's the entire crux of the issue right there in 1943, two years before the war was going to end. Did the murder of Jews conclude with Action Reinhardt? Or did the murder of Jews simply move on to a bigger, better facility called Auschwitz-Birkenau? That's what the entire conversation is, is about. And Auschwitz-Birkenau was seized intact by the Soviets. 
So whereas they could, there was no Treblinka to seize. Treblinka was plowed under in starting in 1943. By 1944, there was no Treblinka. There was a field. Uh, but Auschwitz was seized intact. And there were many, many survivors, people who had been in Auschwitz. And Frank and her family were sent from the Netherlands to Auschwitz. They weren't gassed, and they ended up being sent back uh, west to Bergen-Belsen, where, where she and her sister died of, of typhus. But there were many people that the Soviets encountered in Auschwitz, and many people who had been in Auschwitz who were then cycled back to the Western camps. Auschwitz became the uh, a mythological figure, a representation of the Holocaust. How? But it was inaccurate. How? Hmm? How did that... How did that happen then, if, if that is true? Because at the end of the war, physical representations uh, were needed. Keep in mind that with World War II, we're talking about something very unique. We're talking about a war that had one, one reason going in, but a different reason coming out. The whole shebang started to keep Poland free and independent. That was the whole point of this barbarous endeavor, this this endeavor that cost tens of millions of lives around the world. The whole thing started because Poland must be free and independent. But then at the end of the war, well, we're, we're just going to give Poland to, to Stalin. So nobody wanted people saying, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. If this whole thing started because Poland's got to be independent, and now Poland's about to become a satellite state of the Soviet Union. What was this all for? So both the Western allies and the Eastern uh, allies, they had to have physical representations of Nazi evil, of Nazi brutality, so that they could show the people back home. Now, of course, the Russians didn't need that quite so much because the Russians were invaded. They lost so many people in the Nazi invasion. So they didn't actually have, the, the Russian populace didn't actually have to be told, uh, here's why we fight. I mean, they mm. knew why they were fighting, but the Western allies had to deal with the fact that back home, especially in the United States, which was at that time becoming the dominant power, Churchill kind of sank England. Uh, England's role in the world was sinking, and FDR, who was a much smarter man than Churchill, FDR uh, knew that America would come out of the war as the dominant force uh, in the West. So you had all these people back in America. You don't want them asking, why did we fight? So at the same time that the Russians captured Auschwitz and began renovating that uh, air raid shelter into a gas chamber. Well, at the same time, the, the American army, which liberated Dachau, they took a shower room, a simple everyday shower room. Not that Dachau was a good place. There was nothing simpler every day about Dachau. It was, it was an internment camp and it was a brutal place. But they took a shower room and they converted it into a gas chamber so that all of the newsreels being shown back in the U.S. You would have this dramatic narrator. And here's the gas chamber at Dachau. Here's why we had to fight. Here's why our boys had to die because of the gas chamber. And United States senators and congressmen went to Germany and toured the gas chamber. Yeah. And all the, and all the, 
and all the dying bodies from typhus mm. that the British found at Bergen-Belsen and that we found also in other camps like Iraniansburg and, and other. These were physical representations because obviously once the war was over, the next step was to put the Nazi leadership on trial. At Nuremberg. It was going to be a tough call if it was done legitimately, because how do you put the Nazis on trial for starting the war when it was England and France that declared the war? So you had to obfuscate all of that by having these skeletal dying people, these uh, tragic figures, these people who had mm. been put in internment camps and were dying of typhus and starvation. And it was the, these scenes were not faked. This is absolutely real stuff. The gas chamber at Dachau was certainly fake. And that was actually um, admitted later on. Yes. Yeah. There, There's no... It's a big open secret. Nobody uh, claims that anyone was ever gassed at Dachau. Nobody claims that gas chamber was ever used. And if and if you talk to anyone at Dachau off the record, they will say, yeah, the army, the U.S. Army just put in these fake shower heads. Um, so but but of course, we were able to revise the history of Dachau because Dachau was never that important in terms of the Holocaust. Dachau wasn't even a primarily Jewish camp. Uh, a lot of the prisoners in Dachau were clergymen. Jehovah's Witnesses, leftists, communists, political enemies of the Nazi state. But Auschwitz-Birkenau, which just developed this reputation as being the heart of the Holocaust, the core of the Holocaust, that legend just grew and grew in part because all throughout the 1950s and 60s and much of the 70s, Western researchers couldn't go there and look for themselves because of the, the Cold War, because of the Iron Curtain. Hence that process of revision that began starting in the late 70s and throughout the 80s into the early 90s. And here's something interesting that that you know that is also factual is that the numbers at at some of these death camps including Auschwitz have been adjusted downwards over the years for example the plaque at Auschwitz originally said 4 million nights down to 1 comma something million um how did they come up with these numbers and why have they been adjusted downwards for example well, the Soviet Union was never very big into uh, having anything make any kind of cohesive sense. The Soviets would simply throw out throw out a number. They wouldn't have to prove the number. So that number of 4 million dead at Auschwitz, which was an official number there for decades. But by the time the Poles were freed from Soviet domination, and by the time the Poles really began to look at Auschwitz seriously. And I would date that to about 1988, 89. Mm. That's when the Poles started to realize that there were certain things about the camp that had to be revised by them. Otherwise, uh, would be revised by others. They might as well be the ones doing it themselves. So starting in, I believe it was 1989, could be 88. You've got to forgive me. I'm an old man and I'm, I'm always drinking. Uh, but it was the 88 or 89 that the Polish uh, officially brought the figure down at Auschwitz from the 4 million to roughly a million. But it's a very noncommittal million. They don't say 1 million were gassed. 
Uh, initially, they said one, one million suffered and died. Well, that, that again, that's an open-ended figure. How many suffered, how many died, if they died, from what cause? And that was also why I was able to get that interview several years later with the director of archives there. He was willing to talk to me. There was a lot of these Polish archivists and historians really did want to try to get to some approximation of the truth. Uh, these these were not conspirators. These were not people with any ill intent. They might have been wrong in certain ways. But by, by the late 80s, early 90s, I think they really were trying to grasp at some kind of truth. So you have that figure at Auschwitz come down from 4 million to this non-committal 1 million figure. If you were to ask me, I, I think altogether in the history of Auschwitz, I think it's easy to say that over 100,000 people died there uh, and you you can say, well, do, does that mean killed? Does that mean that? There was certainly a period in 1942 when Hearst, the commandant of Auschwitz, was killing inmates. You know, we, we know that f- for a fact. That's one of the reasons Hearst was removed as commandant. Uh, but you know, certainly over 100,000 at least died there. That That one million figure is itself still an exaggeration. As far as the overall six million figure in terms of the entire nazi holocaust um that figure uh no one really takes it seriously raul hilberg arguably the the greatest holocaust historian of the 20th century whether he was right or wrong about a lot of things he was a defining historian so i would certainly give him that uh hilberg told the jerusalem post way back in 1986 that the figure is almost certainly below 5 million, but that no Holocaust historian wants to go there. They'll, a lot of Holocaust historians are willing to admit that the figure is not 6 million. Then they'll say that well, 5 million, give or take. Hilberg said that it's probably below 5 million, but he also said no one's going to go too far publicly and mm. say that. The 6 million figure is untenable, but it was certainly several million altogether uh, of Jews who died and who were killed. Um, the One of, the, one of the, the myths that I try so hard to fight when I'm dealing with, uh, especially people who consider themselves deniers, that there is a meme that has been going around uh, since my day when it was in pamphlet form, and now it's on, online as a, as a online meme. This whole thing about there's a Red Cross report that, that proves that only... Uh, 300,000 Jews died in the entire Holocaust. Well, it, it, that's not correct. It, it's simply not correct. There's a Red Cross report that details deaths in the Western uh, concentration camps. And that Red Cross report doesn't tackle the Eastern Front at all. Has nothing. It has nothing and no bearing on anything that happened in the east now whatever did happen in the holocaust happened in the east the holocaust did not occur in germany proper the holocaust did not occur in camps like dachau or mauthausen or ravensbrück or any of those uh, western camps so i do always like to dispel that mm. bit of misinformation that red cross report only deals with the western camps and and a guy like germar rudolph who some of your uh you know, you know of him, and some of your your listeners do. Germán Rudolph will be the first one to say that Red Cross report is of very limited value because it only deals with what happened in the West. The what every 
Holocaust historian or Holocaust revisionist or whatever they want to call themselves. Whatever, the only thing they got to focus on is what happened in the East. What happened in the Eastern part of Poland? What happened in the occupied Soviet Union? And that's where the core of whatever you believe did happen or didn't happen, that's where the core of, of what was going on at that time was occurring. Yeah, and I mean, of all those numbers, your contention is that pretty much zero died from gas. Oh, no, no, zero... The, Zero died from gas. Well, okay, I should let me start again and phrase that differently. Number one, at Auschwitz Bear Canal in 1943 and 44, you cannot prove a negative. So you can't say that when they brought Hearst back to the camp in 1944 to be the commandant to deal with the influx of Hungarian Jews, you can't say that at some point he didn't cut some corners and gas a few Jews. You cannot say that because if he had done it, even in small numbers, he could have done it in ways that are not, that would not have left traces. So number one, no historian can ever say zero because uh, th that is, I mean, obviously uh, we can talk about certain things that where you can be absolute like that, but you can't say zero mm -hmm. because Hearst did have a history of killing Jews. Hearst was not a good camp, camp commandant. That's why the Nazis fired him. But when they brought him back in 1944, sure, there, it could have happened. So I would never attach my, my name to the notion of zero, anything like that. When, but in terms of was there a large-scale gassing program at Auschwitz-Birkenau in 1944 for the Hungarian Jews? Uh, no. No, there, there, there simply wasn't. But that's not the same thing as, as saying that it could not have happened. But what about on, any on a Jews? small scale? I'm sorry. What about any Jews? Was there any kind of? Yes. So then we go back to Action Reinhard, that phase two. We know that in phase one, the uh, uh, the Einsatz group, and we know that was by gun, by gunfire. So that's that's settled. Really, there is there's nobody who's even talking about that anymore because it's just settled. The Einsatzgruppen used guns and open air killings, uh, and that's done. We get to that middle phase, phase two, Action Reinhardt. Now here we get we get a puzzle. We know that Jews were being killed en masse during Action Reinhardt. Mm. And the best, one of the best pieces of evidence we have of that is the Goebbels diary, the diary that Goebbels kept. Now, David Irving, when David Irving went to Russia in 1994, this was the first thing that he went to verify, this Goebbels diary, and particularly this one Goebbels diary entry from uh, early 1942. Goebbels, and I'm paraphrasing here, Goebbels said, starting now, we are beginning to kill off the Polish Jews, the ones that can't work. We've estimated that 40% of the Polish Jews can work and be used as labor, and 60% have to be liquidated. The guy who is handling this, uh, the former Gauleiter of uh, Vienna, is doing it in a really secretive fashion, and it's being done in a manner that is so barbarous, I'm not even going to write about it. So let's just stop talking about that. Now, again, I'm paraphrasing. But what makes this an interesting historical puzzle is that you have Goebbels, a man who doesn't blanch at talking about death 
and destruction. But here he is, he's writing about something that he says, he, he, it, it's pretty barbarous, so doesn't want, he doesn't want to write about it, even in his, own, in his own diary. Now, David Irving, when he saw the originals of the Goebbels diary, he saw the originals of that particular passage, that particular part uh, from March 1942, and he verified it, uh, he completely authenticated it. So again, we have the puzzle where we know there were murders, what was the murder weapon? Well, Goebbels doesn't want to talk about it. Uh, we have other people, General Stroop, uh, Richard Korer, Himmler's statistician, um, Kuba, who was at that time head of the, uh, the Jewish ghetto in uh, white Russia. They're all talking about the murders, but nobody's talking about the, the murder weapon. So, what can we do to verify the murder weapon, especially because the camps themselves were liquidated, were plowed under, were raised entirely in 1943? Well, we can never be 100% sure, but we have the survivors. We have the people who escaped from Sobibor and Treblinka. Now, their testimony is obviously going to be tainted, but we only have two things to go by. We have the survivors and we have the commandants. We have We have Stangl and Franz, who were captured uh, alive, they weren't tortured. Uh, they they were uh, in fact uh, they they were eventually uh, allowed to give testimony fairly freely. That that doesn't mean that their testimony can also be trusted because they had their own motives. So when you're dealing with the fact that the only thing you have to go by for that murder weapon is the testimony of the surviving victims and the testimony of the perpetrators. Both sides have um, reasons to uh, not be truthful, fear for their lives, hope for a better sentence, anger at the Nazis, fury at what was done to them. However, they all generally say the same thing, that it was gassed by carbon monoxide. Uh, they generally say the same thing. Not Zyklon B. In not Zyklon B, no. Zyklon B, which only was supposed to be at Auschwitz, but wasn't used at Birkenau in 1944. Uh, but at Treblinka, at Sobibor, they all talk about gassings via uh, exhaust, Zyklon. via car oh, okay. exhaust. And Zyklon, so B was also, Zyklon B was also used at, um, uh, what's it, Madonic, I think it is. Yeah, Maidanek, Maidanek. That's another camp that I mm. debunked back in the early 90s. Uh, Lublin, which was a district that served as a kind of transit point. So many Jews were sent there and then from there sent other people. And there was this camp, Maidanek, where that was also seized intact. It was one of the earliest camps mm. seized by the Soviets. And they, they got the camp completely intact. They didn't build a fake gas chamber at Majdanek. Instead, what they did is they just took the rooms that were being used as Zyklon B uh, disinfestation chamber. For, and they for, for lice. They were, Just for hmm? lice. For lice. Yeah, for lice. Zyklon B was the premier delousing agent that the Nazis used in their camps. It was used as a delousing agent at Majdanek. It was used as a delousing agent in, in Dachau and in Auschwitz and in Mauthausen and in so many camps. Um, and uh, so in my neck, what you had were these ridiculous rooms that were clearly delousing rooms. Uh, that's something I debunked so well in the early 90s. Nobody really invokes those rooms anymore. I mean, that's almost settled 
that those rooms are not gas chambers. Uh, so when we're talking about Zyklon B, we are talking about a delousing agent. Uh, but at the same time, I go back to this again, just to, to be as, as clear as I can, there is no way to prove that at some point in 1944, Rudolf Hirsch at Auschwitz might was, have decided, okay, we're getting... He was hanged, mm-hmm. by the way. He was hanged. Who was hanged after the war, yeah. Mm. And he was he was a lousy commandant. That's a point that I, I, I mm. keep making. He was removed and he was fired by the Nazis because he wasn't that good. So he was no hero. Mm. But he was also a guy who knew his who knew his job. That's why they brought him back in 1944. There's no way that we can prove that there were not one or two gassings with Zyklon B at Birkenau in 1944. So um but no, there was no program to do it. There were no buildings built for to do it in those underground rooms at Birkenau. The two underground one, ones, Cremas two and three, were morgues and body storage facilities. And then the two above ground ones, Crema four and five, were crema- cremation facilities and also uh, had a uh, delousing room in them. Yeah, and. I watched a documentary about um, Madonic. Sorry, you're pronouncing it differently. Am I saying it wrong? You know what? I've heard everyone says it differently. And uh, it's kind of like last week uh, I, I spoke to a guy from Qatar, Qatar you know, how that, that oh, Arabic right. country. Qatar. And you know what he told me? And you know what he told me? He said that the consonants in Arabic don't translate mm. to anything in our alphabet. So he said, just pronounce it the hell, whatever the hell you way you want, because you're not going to do it right no matter what. Maidanek, right, so, I've heard it both ways. I, I'm never a stickler about those things. Okay. Well, I watched a documentary about that particular camp. Um, and what fascinated me, well, was, okay, so the whole delousing thing, uh, which 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 threw me completely off, off center, uh, because what was supposedly gas chambers turned out to be not gas chambers. Some of them didn't even have holes in the ceilings. Um, some of the survivors who thought they were going to get gassed actually ended up having a nice warm shower. Um, and that's by their own testimony. And the other thing about it is how much of that camp was constructed after the war. I mean, they made adjustments to it. Um, and that sort of, aligns with what you were saying about Auschwitz also. Yes, well, there, there are two different facilities at, at Maidenek that that matter for the, the sake of this, this discussion. There is the bath and, and disinfestation facility. Now, that was seized intact. You, you go through that building, and that is... I mean, yeah, there have been shingles that have been replaced. There have been roofing that's been replaced. But in terms of the walls, in terms of the rooms, in terms of what they do, the blue stains are still there from the Zyklon. The blue stains that you get when you repeatedly use Zyklon, uh, Zyklon B in a room with a brick, mortar, and concrete uh, wall. So that room, those rooms are intact, and they were very clearly uh, disinfestation rooms. On the other hand, there is a cremation facility at Maidanek that burned down a long time ago, and that's been completely rebuilt. But you know, they, they always, at the camp, they tell you that that is a rebuild, and you can just w- walk through it. You can see it is because it's pristine. It looks like something that was built uh, you know, in your lifetime, it doesn't look like something that is from World War II. So that cremation facility that is a complete rebuild, I don't really even discuss that. But the buildings with the supposed gas chambers, 
where the blue stains are still there and where every single thing in the room points to the fact that it was a disinfestation facility. The rooms, uh, uh, they have no locks on the door. There are windows in the room. There's, uh, it was, the Nazis had a routine in their camps, these bath and disinfestation facilities where the inmates would be bathed, showered, their clothes would be taken from them. Their, uh, they would get brand new clothes. They would come out of the uh, bathing facility. They would get freshly disinfested clothes. Uh, and it was a process. You go and you give up your old clothes. You get cleaned up. You get deloused. You get your new clothes. These facilities, Dachau was the same way. Mm. In that shower room that the American soldiers turned into the, the phony gas chamber, in that facility, there are also disinfestation cubicles uh, because the Nazis usually lumped all those things together in the same facility mm. where you would get showered and you would get deloused. Your clothing would be deloused or you would get brand new camp clothing that yeah. had just been deloused. So it was very common in these camps to just and, see all of these things in one place. And something else that people forget is that Auschwitz had a football field and a swimming pool. I mean, that's that doesn't sound like something that you would put in an extermination camp, unless, unless it's for the yes. soldiers. The, the swimming pool and the theater were at the main camp. The soccer field was at Birkenau, uh, along with the whorehouse. There's a whorehouse as well. I mean, the Nazis were, um, they realized, like any jailers, your prisoners are always going to outnumber you at any prison, even here in the United States. At any prison, the prisoners outnumber the jailers a thousand to one. So you have to keep your inmates occupied. You have to keep them busy. There, People did get a day off from labor at Auschwitz-Birkenau. Well, what are you going to do? You're going to have them sit around plotting to escape uh, because if all if all of them plotted to escape at once, they could easily overwhelm the guards. Uh, so you just, you keep them busy. Um, you uh, you give them sports, you give them women, you give them food. It's just the way any jailers work, especially at a large civilian internment camp like Auschwitz. Now it's interesting, of course, at Treblinka and Sobibor, where murders were taking place, that's the only places where you actually had mass escapes where everyone every jew just decided fuck it we're getting out of here all at once yeah. because the minute that the jews who were working those camps knew that the camps were about to close they knew they weren't going to be transferred anywhere else I mean, they were they were going to be killed and they'd be, they'd be buried along with the camp so you had mass escapes at only those two places okay. so before at auschwitz there never was a mass escape okay but david now i'm struggling a little bit here and i'm going to I'm sure. gonna th I'm gonna throw something at you that you've probably got so many times, but you you this one person going up against this mountain of knowledge and evidence and books and movies and documentaries, how can all of them be wrong? Well, uh, nothing's a hundred percent wrong. Um, that's a point that I try to make when I talk to people about what revisionism is. We're not dealing with 
anything being 100% wrong. You, you can look at Raoul Hilberg's books. There is a lot that is right in them. You can look at some of the most extreme Holocaust denial books, like the things by Carlo Matonio, Germar Rudolph, who's a friend of mine. I'm not trying to put Germar down. I, I like him. Germar uh, Rudolph, uh, Jürgen Graf. There's right stuff in those books as well. The problem is that you've got two extremes that are married to an extreme, uh, well, how can I put it, that they have to prove fealty to a conclusion that they have pre-decided. Nothing happened, everything happened. Well, sometimes the middle's the right place to be. Not morally, not ethically. You know, when I talk about being in the middle, well, there are things morally and ethically I don't think you should be in the middle. I mean, when it comes to something like free speech, when it comes to something like human rights, the right to speak freely, the right to be free, there is no middle. You're either for that or you're against it. But when it comes to a discipline like history, when you have this extreme and that extreme and their conclusions, they've decided on already, so they're not going to bend. Well, here I come. All I did was look at the two extremes and say, here's where you guys are right and here's where you guys are wrong. Here's where you guys are right. Here is where you guys are wrong. And it turns out that the truth, as best I'm able to know it, is actually kind of in, in the middle. Um, you take the bits that are accurate. Now, obviously, I, I, when I say that, it's only because I did the research myself. I didn't just read a bunch of books on both sides and decide, well, here's what I'm going to believe. I saw the original documents. I went to the original camps. I interviewed the people uh, who needed to be interviewed, who had knowledge from years before I was born. So my conclusion is not based on just reading a bunch of books and making my own decision. My conclusion is doing the research with the original documents, the original locations, and it just so happened that the conclusion I came to is kind of in the middle of the two extremes. It didn't have to be yeah. that way. Maybe the deniers could have been right or that side could have been right, but it just so happened that the middle is the place to be in this. So, okay, so let me let me just try and package quickly where we are. That there absolutely was mass murder of Jews and, of course, other other people, groups, without a doubt. We were obviously in a war. Uh, the, there was certainly a lot of hatred for Jews, um, since that's the center of this conversation. But you're also saying that uh, some of the stories that we get told today are simply not true, like extermination camps and gas chambers. Well, uh Treblinka and Sobibor and Belzec definitely were camps of extermination. I mean, that's where people, people were only sent there to die. Um, it was part of that period, that phase called Action Reinhardt. Uh, and that, but Birkenau, Auschwitz-Birkenau was an extermination camp. That is simply not true. Dachau was an extermination camp. It's simply not true. Majdanek as an extermination camp. It's simply not true. The, the thing that I caution everybody who gets involved in this topic is to never go into it like I was saying about the two different sides. Mm. Don't go into it with any kind of predetermined conclusion and don't go into it wanting any kind of a simple pat answer. The Nazis, and you can call it a Holocaust, you call it whatever you want. The Nazis did engage in premeditated, uh, ethnically based murder of Jews. 
primarily directed against the Polish Jews. Poland, Poland posed a problem uh, for the Nazis. Uh, once the war, I mean, obviously, war starts in 1939, but once the war gets going uh, in 1941 with the invasion of Russia and the Allies and the, the, the United States jumping in at the end of 41, Nazis have this problem. They're in control of Poland. Poland's got like three million Jews in it. Uh, there were two different minds that the Nazi leadership had, mainly at the Wehrmacht, whose position was, look, these Jews will labor for us. These Jews, they'll make raw materials. These Jews will make raw goods for us. But then you had the more extreme uh, voices like Goebbels uh, and Himmler who were like, no, we got to cleanse. Gotta, mm. These people are a danger to us. They are enemies of the Nazi state. They're dirty. They carry typhus. They engage mm. in black marketeering. There is no good that can come in keeping these people around. A compromise was eventually re reached uh, regarding the Jews of Poland, where the ones that could labor were kept alive to labor. But the ones who were considered useless eaters, primarily the elderly and, and the children, were killed. Now, that created its own problem that I, the Nazis may or may not have foreseen, which is that that, that core of Jews who were kept alive to labor, well, by 1943, uh, they didn't trust that they were going to be kept alive. They had lost their parents. They had lost their kids. Mm. Uh, so they started rebelling. Right. A lot of the murders of Jews that happened starting around like late 43, throughout 44, happened because the Nazis went about their, uh, their mass murders kind of backwards. They saved the young and the healthy and the strong. Mm. But they took their kids and their parents away. Well, well, you know, eventually a lot of those young and healthy Jews, they're just going to get pissed off and they're not going to they're not going to play ball anymore. So the Nazis, the way they went about it, uh, ended up causing problems for them uh, in the long run. And uh, so there these are all those side stories I was telling you about when I was you know, trying to outline the three main phases. Mm. But then you have other side stories like the, the, the rebellions that happened, a lot of Jews who were killed, mass put downs of Jews because right. of rebellions. These were all things, these are all interwoven in the main history of it. But David, I, I watched a show once um, uh, about Auschwitz being this horrible death camp. Um, and it was, it was narrated by that bastion of factual historical truth, Oprah. <laughs> and and it starts off with her standing in the front in the snow and and then she cuts to to awful footage of uh, uh um track um um i've gone blank now bulldozers picking mm -hmm. up bodies and throwing them into open pits the result of 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 mass gas chamber killings at auschwitz what what do you make of that is she is she lying well, she's wrong. Uh, I think many of the people who are wrong are not consciously lying. I think they simply believe what they've read, what they've heard. Uh, I don't think there's any malice behind it, mm. but she's certainly wrong. But it's very hard with all of the literature and movies uh, an emotional uh, dialogue that has been associated with Auschwitz over the, the decades. It's very hard. It's very hard to uh, argue against that. 
But I really don't think most of the people who repeat those untruths, I really don't think they're lying. And I don't think that they're part of any kind of conspiracy to purposely misinform. I believe they have been misinformed themselves and that they are simply like so many of us do in different situations in life. They hear something and they pass it along to someone else, especially if it makes them look good and it makes them look informative and smart to, to pass it along. Okay, but David... The Nuremberg trials say that you're wrong. Oh, well, the, the Nuremberg trials are, have not really been used very much by modern historians uh, in terms of Holocaust history because it's understood how flawed they were. Um, the Nuremberg trials were simply another act of the war. I mean, it was the conclusion of the war. The war didn't end when the guns went silent. The next act of the war was liquidating the enemy leadership. We can kind of admit that now. It's really not that taboo. Mm -hmm. A lot of good books have been written about the flaws in the Nuremberg trial. So it is not terribly taboo to say that the the trials were a a horrifically flawed endeavor where information was just kind of willy-nilly thrown around where the Soviet judges got to say whatever they wanted. If there's a miracle of the Nuremberg trial, it's that a couple of the defendants were acquitted. The fact that a guy like Schacht, as responsible as anyone else for the Nazi economic boom, the fact that he's acquitted at Nuremberg, you know, the Soviets didn't want that, but that was like the Soviets could only push just so far before the American and British judges uh, were like, you know, bad sport. That's bad sportsmanship. Generally, though, the, the Nuremberg trials were just a mess. They were a terrible, terrible mess. But it's not really what historians rely on. The first great Holocaust book was written in the 1950s. It was called The Final Solution by Gerald Reitlinger. Still one of the best books in the field. I mean, I'm not saying every page is correct, but Reitlinger went back and mainly he he looked at documentary evidence. He he Mm -hmm. didn't go by any of the the trial pronouncements at Nuremberg. Um, To the best of my knowledge, I don't go on TV talking about this that much anymore, but to the best of my knowledge, you can go on TV these days and say that the Nuremberg trials were uh, were shaky. We're not not the best example of jurisprudence in the world. I I don't think you'll get death threats for that. I I think there's a general understanding that from a a legal point of view, these were not really good trials, but but merely the the conclusion of a war, Mm. the same as lining someone up against a wall and shooting them, which we did. And of course, the Nazis did that when they invaded Russia. We did that uh, when we uh, entered Germany. So you line up the leadership and you kill them. We just made it look a little prettier. (laughs) Um, Can I read you a question? I see we've gone over time, but I'm going to try and keep you for a few minutes longer, if you don't mind. Of course. Happy um, to be here. Ruth wants to know. Um, let me just get this right quickly. Sorry, I was going to find. No, not Ruth. Sorry, I beg your pardon. Her name's Rosie. She wants to know why would there be death camps and labor camps? Well, I like to think I answered that question because the decision that was made with the Polish Jews mm. was that about 40% of them could be used. I mean, this Goebbels says right. this. Uh, he says. can be used as labor. About 60% will have to be liquidated. Okay, so what do you do now that you've made that decision? If we accept 
<clears throat> that the Nazi leadership has made that decision. And Goebbels says in the diary several times that this is all stuff the Fuhrer has affirmed. So Goebbels isn't saying this behind the Fuhrer's back. He is saying Hitler is in agreement with this. So now you've made that decision that 40 percent uh, are to be used for labor and 60 percent have to be liquidated. Now, how do you implement that? At present, you've got all the Jews in ghettos, big ghettos in Warsaw, in Lodge. And what are you going to do? Well, OK, you want to liquidate that 60 percent of Jews in the ghetto where the 40 percent can see it happen in front of them. Mm-hmm. That would cause chaos. What do you get? First of all, you don't have the manpower for that. You, you've got um, millions of Jews in ghettos and you're going to send one army troop in to just go door to door and shoot mom in the head, shoot the kid in the head. No, the Nazis are a bit smarter than that. Uh what they did was they they uh, told the ghetto inmates that they were going to begin resettling them. And the ghetto inmates were happy to hear that. Nobody wanted to be in the damn ghetto. The ghetto was a filthy place where, where food was scarce. Disease was rampant. So the Nazis were like, we're going to begin to resettle you now. Uh, we're going to start taking train loads of you to the new bright resettlement places in the east. And uh, you'll be fine. You can write letters back and all that. Well, that that actually just makes sense. You know, the the, the way your questioner phrases it, it it kind of is like, why would that make sense? It makes perfect sense. If Mm -hmm. I was going to do that, if I was going to liquidate a ghetto full of a million people where I wanted to keep 40 and kill 60 percent, it's exactly how I would do it. I would not risk my own troops to go in there and kill people in the walls of the ghetto, which would create mass hysteria and mm. and hatred, and nobody would labor. That 40% who's going to labor, they're not going to labor. No, the, the Nazis did it the smart way. They filtered out, they siphoned out the ones they were going to kill. They sent them to a very remote place in the easternmost part of uh, Poland uh, where they were killed. It's actually the perfectly logical way to go about it. Ruth has a comment here and she says i don't think nazi and smart should be in the same sentence (laughs) well i mean anybody can there are smart communists there are smart nazis there there's pretty much anybody can be smart i mean people point out hitler was anti-smoking well that was pretty smart uh hitler was also a vegetarian that's fucking stupid so you know you get smart and dumb in both <laughs> um the mixed bag. <laughs> Listen, I I've got one or two more questions for you, but the general uh consensus so far with the listeners is that um that you are a great thinker, a great academic, and I'm struggling, David, I'm really struggling to figure out why you are seen as some pariah, some uh some evil filmmaker i don't get it i mean you're perfectly reasonable that's the part that is very shocking to me i go back to 1994 when Mm. at the the newspaper at the time that was the largest jewish newspaper in the united states um their headline ran uh hitler hussein arafat and cole and it's what is more ridiculous when you hear me speak, anyone who's ever met me, anyone who's ever spent time conversing with me, 
to put me in the pedestal with with Hitler, Hussein, Arafat, or anyone, or Stalin, or any of the histories, warmongers, or mass murderers. Or, I'm just a guy who is trying his best to figure things out and hopefully is able to communicate them well to other people. But I've, I've, uh, I have gotten this reputation of being monstrous. I mean, you, you've had you've had Gavin McInnes on yeah. your show. Yeah, he's, he, he, founded, I, he founded Proud Boys. Yes. When I did Gavin's show a couple of years ago, when Gavin had his own show on the Anthony Cumia network, and I he had me on at the very tail end, and he gave this introduction that is it's fascinating to hear it. I don't know if that show is still available or, or, or if it's been uh, liquidated or not, but his introduction to me said that I'm the first guest he ever had who he's afraid to have on. And he was actually scared to have me on. I'm like, why? I'm a pussycat. I'm, I really am not terribly offensive, but I thought it was hilarious that Gavin McGinnis, of all people, uh, was scared of me. I don't know how that happens. Um, well, to be, to be fair to Gavin, I also was a little bit afraid. <laughs> but more, not because of you, but I think because of the topic. Um, and... Yeah, of course. I want to ask you about that quickly. I just it's a bit of a meta question, but why is this conversation so aggressively opposed? Why do people lose their jobs, get arrested, go to jail, uh get silenced, get deplatformed, get protested? What is it that makes this subject so um untouchable? Uh, it's twofold. First part of it is that for Jews in the West, uh, the Holocaust is something that is seen as sacred. As Jews in the West have become more secular, as they have become less religious, they have adopted the Holocaust as a kind of uh, pseudo-religion, a replacement for belief in God, for belief in, in the Old Testament, for following Old Testament laws. So... The Holocaust has taken on a position in modern Western Jewry that is inappropriate for any historical topic to take among any people because history is all about questioning and prodding, whereas religious faith uh, should be about taking something on faith. But you don't take history on faith, just like you shouldn't take science on faith. So there's that. The second half is that because the Holocaust doesn't, have too much emotional relevance to non-Jews. Non-Jews have been very willing over the last 30 years or so to allow Jews to outlaw revisionism or denial because it doesn't really affect the average Joe Kentucky farm worker, the mm. average Detroit auto worker here in the States. They're not affected by that. So Jews have been allowed Jewish politicians and Jewish advocacy groups like the ADL, the Wiesenthal Center, and all that their, their versions that exist over in Europe. They've been allowed to outlaw any questioning into the Holocaust. And then what happened was non-Jews saw all of that censorship, all of that prosecution of speech that was going on about the Holocaust. And non, a lot of non-Jews on the left were like, yeah, we want to expand this. Now that we've outlawed Holocaust denial, now let's outlaw racism. 
and now let's outlaw questioning any, anything that black people say. It all started with the Holocaust, uh, outlawing revisionism, outlawing denial, which is, of course, different than revisionism. But, but in Europe, both revisionism and denial are both outlawed. Outlawing those things formed a foundation that allowed an expansion of those, those police state anti-speech tactics to be expanded. Hey, we just outlawed denial. Well, then it's only appropriate we outlaw things that it, that offend black people. That's only mm. appropriate that we outlaw things that offend Muslims. And all of a sudden, we ha- we get to the situation where we are now, where it seems all over the West, whether by law or just on social media, everything's being outlawed, everything's being suppressed. If you go back to the core of it, it all started with laws and rules against revisionism and denial. Um, it started uh, and- with the Holocaust. Yeah, it started with the Holocaust. And now if you break that, if somebody lets me speak freely, that might lead people to question all of those anti-speech laws. If I turn out to not be a monster, if I turn out to be somewhat reasonable, then people like, wait a minute, then maybe the laws against revisionism are wrong. Maybe that means all those other anti-speech rules and regulations and laws are wrong. Mm. So now they've backed themselves into a corner. They have to keep a guy like me from having too much of a presence it could the whole house of dominoes could come down yeah it does it does sound reasonable what you're saying pj wants to know quickly david if you don't mind why if the plan was to kill off most of the jews did hitler have the havara agreement to move the, the jews out of germany before the war started Okay, well, now we get we have to get into the uh, the substance of the the, the minutia the Jews of Germany proper were never slated to be exterminated. The Jews of Germany proper during the 1930s, Hitler did everything he could to try to move them out. He tried forcing them. He also tried uh, working with uh, the people in, in Palestine, with the Zionists, to give them incentives to leave. We're talking about Germany, a mistake that a lot of people make when they look at the Holocaust is they don't realize it's something that happened over the course of four years in a dozen countries. Every year and every country tells a different story. So when we're talking about the Jews of Germany proper, Hitler in the 1930s tried to simply get rid of them by getting them to leave, by giving them any incentive to leave. Okay. And he did. He was largely successful. He was able to reduce the German Jewish population by several hundred thousand. Um, then we have we 1939, the war starts in terms of Poland. So the Nazis take part of Poland. Stalin takes the other part of Poland. Now, 1941, the Nazis invade the whole East. They get all of Poland, and they go into Russia, and they get they take White Russia, and they they want to go straight to Moscow if they can. Now the landscape has changed. The German Jews are still the ones remaining in Germany. They're 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 still no. There's no discussion to kill them, and in fact, there were Nazis like Kuba, the the uh, plenipotentiary of White Russia, who very clearly states that these German Jews shouldn't be killed because they look like us. They have our eyes. They speak our language. They know the same music. 
He says this. Uh, this is one of the most powerful Nazis in, in, in the East. And he says this very clearly. He writes it in, in, uh, in letters uh, back and forth with, with the Nazi hierarchy. So we now leave Germany. We leave that situation. We now go to Poland where the Nazis have inherited mm. about three million dirty, filthy, Slavic Jews that are seen as alien. They are seen as enemies of the Nazis. And more than that, they're seen as security risks. This is the front. They're too close to the front. You got three million enemies of the state too close to the front. Different things. So when you want to talk about the Havara Agreement, you want to talk about how Hitler was dealing with German Jews in 1935, it's a very different thing to how the Nazis dealt with Polish Jews in 1942. History is three-dimensional. It's not all a two-dimensional plane. I run into too many people who, who see the entire, it, it's what I call the Hindenburg fallacy, where people see the Holocaust as the Hindenburg, something that happened at one place, at one time, and one night. Either the balloon exploded or it didn't. And it all happened at one place. That is not World War II. That is not the Holocaust. Years went by, policies changed, and different policies were implemented in different countries. David, I have a strong feeling that there's going to be a demand for you to come back to do a Q&A session uh, where I don't talk. And I just let listeners ask you questions because, um, I mean, I'm looking at the time now and we've gone on for nearly 90 minutes. I've kept you almost 30 minutes longer than, than you promised. Uh, but it's, it's, been a, it's been a pleasure. And I will tell you, I will come back. I would be more than happy to answer uh, your listeners' questions. I could do a whole hour on that. Uh, if they would like that, if you would yeah. like that, you can invite me back anytime. No, I think I'm going to have to do that because I do have a number of questions that I just can't get to. Uh, and um, and this is certainly it's a bit of an anti anticlimax to some degree. I was expecting so much more controversy. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I'm I'm way more controversial in my columns at TackyMag, TackyMag.com, where I have my weekly column. I'm way more controversial in what I write in my weekly column. I find my, you know, my Holocaust work, there have been so many people in the course of my life who come at me, you know, like this, and then they, they spend 10 minutes talking with me and they're like, son of a bitch, you actually make sense. Um, I never ask for anyone to agree with me, but at least when you hear me out, you realize that I'm not crazy and I'm not full of hate uh, and and I'm certainly not a man who is trying to spread misinformation. I look at myself quite the opposite as someone who is trying his best to take a controversial subject where there is a lot of misinformation already. Mm. I try my best to bring it to people in a clear way to to explain what is accurate, what is inaccurate, yeah. and uh, that, that that to me, if I can do that, that's that's all I'm happy to do. I have very much enjoyed my conversation with you um and um david i think you and i will stay in touch post this conversation um i will i will let you know uh when this is more sort of uh officially uploaded etc um but david thank you so much for your time it is almost midnight here so it's bedtime you're gonna go and enjoy the rest of your day <laughs> 
I got to I got to take another drink is what I got to do. So. <laughs> <laughs> Thank right, you for David. having me on, Jeremy. No, it's, it's an been abs- a pleasure. Yeah, it's also been a pleasure on my side. All right, uh, my name is Germ. This is Germ Warfare, the Battle of Ideas. If you enjoyed this podcast, please visit supportgerm.com.